0: I would like the wider public and certainly the people focusing on trans autistic people in in research and academically to know that, you know, trans autistic people are are real people that have their own opinions. We're not a captive group that can be studied and, and written about as if we don't have our own opinions.
1: Drinks on 3rd, our psychology and social justice podcast. I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. And I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. Welcome in. Today, we're interviewing Noah Adams, co-author of Trans and Autistic, Stories from Life at the Intersection.
2: Noah Adams is a PhD student from the University of Toronto. He is a junior fellow at the Center for Applied Transgender Studies and he's co-founder and board member of Transgender Professional Association for Transgender Health. He wrote the book Trans and Autistic with Bridget Lang, which was published in July 2020 by Jessica Kingsley. So welcome to The Shrinks on 3rd, Noah.
0: Thanks, it's great to be here.
2: You do a lot of advocacy and research in the trans and autistic community. That could almost be one word, like trans-autistic?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think we're still kind of figuring that out, like what, you know, some people say neuroqueer, but that has kind of a a distinct meaning. Some people say autastic, you know, there's no no given term.
2: What led you to, you know, to that interest? That's a pretty specific one.
0: Well, I actually started out doing uh, transgender suicidality research, which I did for my master's thesis you know, after I finished that, I, I had a mentor who was doing work in sort of a trans autistic overlap and he really encouraged me to to look at that. And, and of course I am trans and autistic, so it had sort of a natural fit. And yeah, I just kind of kept going in that direction.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your own background? What what led you to where you are now?
0: Sure. Well, I guess right now I'm a PhD student at the University of uh, Toronto at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. I'm going into my third year, which is a little, it's going by really fast. And I'm working on my comps right now, which is also very overwhelming. I think I've made a bigger deal about it in my head than it actually is in in real life. It's kind of a big
2: deal.
0: (laughs) It's kind of a a big deal too, but my dissertation will be on trans autistic community development. So, you know, how sort of grassroots uh, community advocacy organizations or support groups form and sort of go out of existence and reform. Before that, I mentioned I I did a Master of Social Work uh, at Dalhousie University, (laughs) where I focused on trans-suicidality research, um, mostly looking at uh, there's been a lot of different studies published and the rates are kind of all over the place. So kind of doing a metasynthesis of that. And before that I did a bachelor of arts and a bachelor of social work, which is kind well, of way, way in the distant past.
2: Well, and going into the, probably even further distant past, which did you know you were first trans or autistic? When were you diagnosed with autism?
0: I actually got the, an official diagnosis last year, but I mean, I, kind of always know. And I guess, you know, it always seemed to be something that resonated with me. I mean, I know it's kind of cliche, but I guess I always knew I was trans
1: from very young, from early childhood. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know if I had that. I'm almost 40. So I didn't really have that language when I was really young. But I, I think if you could transpose that language to then, it would have made a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. I hear a lot of adults saying that now, because of the language that we have now to talk about these things. Actually, both being autistic and being trans, the language has come into, you know, our awareness and our understanding more recently, I'd say.
0: Well, and I think, you know, a lot's changed in terms of how autism is diagnosed. And, and you know, I mean, I think one of the biggest, if you want to call it a sea change is has been stuff around the diagnostic categories and and the disappearance of Aspergers and and sort of the the umbrella diagnosis of of autism but but also, you know, changes in how it's perceived. So, it's not necessarily seen as something that totally debilitates you. Mm-hmm. For lack of better better words. People
2: understand the strengths more. Are you somebody that that identifies more with the Aspergers or
0: well, I mean, right. no, not, not particularly. I mean, also it's, it's recently come to light that Hans Asperger was a Nazi. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. which is distasteful
1: to say the least. <laughs> yeah.
0: That, that's neither here nor there, but in retrospect, I'm not sure why it would ever have been that surprising. Yeah. Yeah. But I do know, I do know people in the community that really have an attachment to that term or, or have an attachment to like high functioning autism. I mean, I, you know, on a personal level, I think that it doesn't really help, anybody to create a hard distinction between high and low, so-called low functioning. And, you know, I mean, what I see talking to folks and, and reading the research is that a lot of people function at, everybody functions at different levels, you know, so you might be really good, you know, or really, really quote unquote functional at one thing and, and not very good at another thing. And that's not particularly a uniquely autistic trait.
2: That's right. Not at all. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the intersection of both of these things help us understand
0: that (laughs) so for my comps i'm doing a lit review which will eventually end up in my dissertation hopefully i've just been kind of swimming in all this research and um you know it's it's funny i i was sort of doing a a low-key literature review until i started doing it for the comps and doing it much more comprehensively until about a couple years ago there was maybe about 150 articles had ever talked about you know, an intersection of trans and autism. And there's been about 350 in the last year and a half. Wow. So it's, it's really, you know, people are, are really keen on the subject. There's all sorts of theories about why there might potentially be an overlap. I don't, I don't find the research that exists right now, particularly. I I think it's interesting. I think it's indicative that there might be an overlap, but I don't see it, a smoking gun, so to speak.
2: What do you mean? You mean, overlap in that a lot of autistic people are also trans or a lot of trans people are also autistic is that what you're saying
0: both i mean I, i the research there is research showing both but it's very observational for the most part so it's not there's lots of theories about you know brain gender and and more testosterone in brains and and more than a little bit of skull measuring and, you know, I mean, of, of course, they have to do the same old 2D, 4D. I don't know if you're familiar with 2D, 4D finger ratio research, yeah, where they, they measure the, the ratio between your second and your fourth finger. And supposedly it, it indicates whether you're gay or you're left handed or you're I mean, they do it for a lot of things. I'm not sure it has a particular utility. So now they're doing it for trans autistic people. I don't I don't know that it tells us anything.
1: This, this thing that isn't that useful for anyone is now also being applied to this.
0: I don't even think it tells us what we think it tells us. You, you might as well just be measuring people's skulls.
1: Yes. Exactly. yes. But
0: in any case, I mean, there's been some recent research uh, and some recent editorials that have come out. Also, um, I'm thinking of Rubes Walsh, who is a neurotrans person. I'm not sure how particularly they identify, but I know they're on the spectrum, who has posited a theory that, and I've seen this in other places, that more, you might see more trans people who are autistic or more autistic people who are trans in a large umbrella, non-binary, you know, genderless sense because uh, autistic people are less likely to notice that they should hide that kind of thing or possibly care that they should. Or they're not, they're maybe not as capable of navigating the understandably difficult social conditions to kind of have an intelligible gender, let's say.
1: That's an interesting point because you're kind of saying that people are just less self-conscious or less aware that they're supposed to be self-conscious and that the therefore they reveal their gender fluidity more than let's say the more general population.
0: I mean, I think I, you know, I want to be careful with the, with the self-conscious piece, because I think that there's a lot of self-conscious and a lot of anxiety around uh, for autistic people around realizing that you're not navigating social situations correctly, but, but, that you may not be capable of doing, or you may not be uh, as capable of hiding the fact that you're struggling to do so from the people around you. So, so if they're looking for somebody who's trans, you're kind of going to stand out. I, I mean, it's also true that a lot of this research, especially on trans people, gets done in clinical environments where they're throwing every kind of uh, inventory, mental health inventory at them, you know, in the deck. So it's, it's less surprising that you might find things that you're looking for. Yeah. But, you know, I, I find that, fairly convincing. It certainly helps to explain, I think, why you do see more trans autistic people.
2: That is interesting. I've heard that the perspective that I've heard is that autistic people are more fluid, but you're kind of talking about why we see that, which is even deeper. It's interesting.
0: I mean, it's difficult to say because the research is also observational at this stage. and I, I don't know well, first of all, I don't know that we'll ever get to a point where we're like, okay, if A then B, and I don't know that we really need to right. because it doesn't it doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't it's it's interesting academically perhaps, but it doesn't help people who are actually autistic or actually trans. But I think it is it is a convincing argument for why we might observationally see more people who are both. It has some utility for helping people who are both, if that makes sense.
1: It does. It does. So you co-authored a book called Trans and Autistic, where you based it on interviews of people. Can you tell yes, us?
0: Yeah. That? Bridget and I wrote a book, I, and I think it's been out for about a year now. And the whole process took about, oh gosh, about three years, where we interviewed 10 folks who are both trans and autistic. And and of course, I'm using trans as a placeholder, but that may have meant non-binary, may have meant gender, you know, and, and, and people's identities have, in, in some cases, have since fluctuated a bit. We did long form interviews. And then we kind of put those in the book and and away we went. But it was uh, yeah, it was it was a tremendously gratifying process. I have to say, I I really enjoyed the research process.
2: What did you learn from it?
0: I mean, this is a little in the weeds, but from a methodological (laughs) standpoint, like it it was really interesting to learn, you know, we we start with um, an idea of what we want that interview format to be. And then of course, you meet people you're interviewing and, and that changes as you go through, but, but learning how we could, you know, incorporate people's feedback in the interview process. So we would, you know, we would do this interview and initially I was like, well, you know, we should either provide everybody with, with the questions ahead of time or nobody, but that ended up kind of, you know, being, being influenced by what, what worked best for folks. And initially I was like, okay, we'll interview people in person. But what was interesting is that most people wanted to be interviewed by text or online in some form. And that seemed to work really well for folks that were autistic because they could kind of process things slower and and go over a longer period of time. And it was great for me because I didn't have to transcribe anything. And then, you know, so we would get this transcript and then we would send it back to them for, for their feedback. And most people were like, "Ah, oh, it's fine. But some people really, you know, they're like, take that out, add this in you know, I wanted to clarify this point. And then we would kind of go back and forth as we as we got further on in the draft process, just to make sure that they were okay with what they were being represented as. And I was I was surprised. I mean, obviously, we entered into it offering to use a pseudonym for everybody, we asked people to pick their own pseudonym. But most people wanted to be identified. Most people wanted to use their name. And it was it was interesting to me that that became an important option to give people. Because okay. they wanted they wanted it to be something that they could they could say, you know I'm in this book or you know I've told my story, and this is me
1: yeah it's it's sort of validating, so what kinds of things did you learn from all of these interviews uh,
0: just how varied the experience was. It was great to have Bridget there because uh she's Chinese and she speaks Chinese, so she was able to speak with people who are not native English speakers or, or maybe chinese speakers and and to bring some of that experience in. We worked hard to be very intentionally diverse and, and to select folks to interview that you know, didn't just represent sort of white, masculine kind of um, perspective.
2: So in all your research and interviewing and writing, like what's your goal? What are you trying to do?
0: I would like the wider public and certainly the people focusing on trans autistic people in, in research and academically to know that, you know, trans autistic people are, are real people that have their own opinions. We're not a captive group that can be studied and, and written about as if we don't have our own opinions.
2: And that everyone's different kind of thing. Like, it's not just this homogenous group.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think that's what's, that's what's come across pretty loudly for me is that everybody's different. But also that people are quite capable. I mean, I, you know, I remember, I always tell this story because it's, it's really... I really like this story, but this guy that I interviewed that was not able to get trans healthcare as an autistic person in his city of origin and ended up coordinating a move to a different city across the country in order to get trans healthcare and not telling his doctor he was autistic, which is like, well, you're not. You're not even able to be completely honest with your doctor for fear of not getting trans health care. His doctor later told him, well, she'd known he was autistic and she'd known he was autistic because there's a pipeline of people that come from that city to his new city because they can't get trans health care as autistic people in the old city. I mean, it speaks to the problem but it also speaks to you know you're infantilizing this population as incapable of managing their own healthcare but they can systematically pick up their whole lives move across the country just to get trans healthcare i mean that's that's an indicator of being pretty capable
2: so they can't get it because people think because they're autistic they don't really know what they want or
0: more or less i mean it's it's not usually put in the context of, well, no, we won't give you this healthcare before because you're autistic. But it's, it's more like if you, and I, I see this in the research that does interviews with practitioners, is if you make your healthcare practitioner nervous and you give them a narrative that they're not expecting, they're going to default to, well, let's wait until I'm more certain. And you might wait forever because that narrative is never, potentially never going to be something that they're going to see a lot of or that they're going to feel comfortable with.
1: So it sounds like if you tell the truth and you say, I'm I'm trans and I'm autistic, in in the hands of certain doctors, you give up any control because they decide whether you deserve or whether you're actually legitimately trans based on the autism diagnosis.
0: I mean, sometimes it's that it's that cut and dry. Sometimes it's more like you've made them, you've made them nervous. You've made them, and I, you know, I understand doctors are inherently conservative in this sense, and they want to make sure they're not doing the wrong thing, but they're never going to be comfortable with a narrative they don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and a lot of doctors are, are pressed and they're not interested in, in maybe, or they don't know where to go to expand their knowledge base. So you're just going to wait forever. It seems to disproportionately affect people who can't hide or aren't aware that they need to hide the fact that they're
2: autistic. There's a lot of doctors also uncomfortable with trans healthcare. So you're really talking about, you know, a kind of maybe small group of doctors who feel comfortable.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I don't think there's a lot of uh, this is this is something that comes up again and again, is that there needs to be more medical training and more professional training. And I think this is this is the niche within a niche. And I don't you know, you might get one single Oh, what do they call it, rotation or one single, you know, class that talks about LGBT healthcare, or if you're lucky, transgender healthcare. And if you're really lucky, they'll mention in passing autism, but they'll probably mention it as, well, there's there's a higher congruence of the two, the end. So you should be really careful when you're when you're diagnosing people. Which is, which is what most of the research says. You should be, or what most of the editorials say. Well, there's, you know, and they, they list it as a mental health thing and there's this, this higher con- congruence of the two. So be careful when you're diagnosing, but they don't really give people any guidance on what that means.
1: No, I mean, it sounds like maybe you could use your book once everybody's gotten their PhDs <laughs> to educate physicians because they sound like they really need more education in this.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, uh, I have I have some sympathy for how complex the problem is. Like, there's so much training doctors need in, in so many different, I mean, it's not just about trans healthcare. It's not just about LGB healthcare. Like, there's so many different, especially GPs. There's so many different aspects of training they need to receive. And it's, it's like, one half hour or one hour lecture doesn't really suffice. But how do you fit that in with everything else? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm sure it is important to fit it in because mm-hmm. of as you mentioned, you know, the suicide rates for trans people in general are so high that it it is really important for people to be educated about it. You said you did research in in that? Yeah, I'm I essentially
0: did a meta-synthesis of existing trans suicidality research to sort of try to explain why there's such big discrepancies between studies. Like you see some studies that say the rate of suicide ideation is 9%. You see others that I think the highest one I saw was was north of 89% and, and why you see those distinctions.
2: A big discrepancy.
1: Yeah, I would think it's probably uh, on the higher side versus the lower side.
0: <laughs> it seemed to come out to around, for ideation, it seemed to come out to around, I'm trying to remember now, 43-ish percent. And then of course, Attempts were lower than that. I I think in the low 30%, but I'd I'd have to look at the paper again.
1: That is a very high number though, for attempts. That's like one out of three people. That's a lot. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, I I mean, everybody knows, everybody who's trans, I should say, knows somebody who in the community who has, has had suicidal ideation or attempts or what have you. But I mean, and the research is pretty unequivocal in the impact that family and societal acceptance and support and especially early childhood support has on suicidality rates.
1: That makes sense. If a family is more supportive, you know, the child is less desperate.
0: I mean, basically goes to, um, there's a study in Ontario called uh, TransPulse. And I believe they did some, some research on that. And my understanding is that it basically becomes the same as you would expect a suicidality rate to be in the general population.
1: Oh, not higher.
0: No, no, pretty much the same. And, and school support, it was very important.
2: It was a protective factor in yes. yeah. for people, as is family support.
0: And I think one of the things that gets misinterpreted about the research is, is you see some studies and some talking heads talk about, well, you know, after transition or, or what have you, suicidality remains high. But, I mean, you would expect it to because you're asking people about their lifetime suicidality. It's, it's maybe going to stop being as much of an issue for them, but they're never going to, as a population, have not been suicidal at some point in their life.
1: Right, like right, You, you right. can't
0: erase history.
1: No, and if you've been suicidal as a child, those feelings can come up in adulthood, mm-hmm. even when you're doing better. So so is there anything that you would like to say to people about how they might better support the autistic trans community? Something that you've gotten from your book or from your research or personally.
0: I think just listening to people, and if you were a physician or, or a mental health practitioner and you're, you're seeing this overlap in your patients, there are organizations like the Autistic Women's Network and Nonbinary Network and other Autistic Facing and, and Autistic Trans organizations that you can reach out to and ask for some guidance or some feedback from. You don't, you don't need to take that all from very hard sciences researchers. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. <laughs>
1: You don't have to be diplomatic on our podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you have your own website that has information or?
1: Yeah,
0: noahjadams.com. I haven't updated in a bit, unfortunately, but I I do put downloadable materials on there as they become available.
2: Oh, terrific. There's some research and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and. Is that soon to be DrNoahJadams.com?
0: Eventually. <laughs> I, I don't want to, you know, I got to find some wood to knock on. I don't want to
2: jinx okay, myself. Yeah, sorry. I'll knock on something my my head.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll uh, pass through those comps with flying colors <laughs> and get onto that dissertation.
0: <laughs> Ugh, you fight so hard to finish one step and then there's a harder step in front of it.
1: Another oh. hoop always. <laughs> Another flaming hoop to jump through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it's been great talking to you, Noah. Um, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us. And we really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was great.
2: Thanks for listening today. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at third Until next time, take care.